In this episode, I'm joined by two fantastic guests, and we're talking about accessible travel and tips for visiting Washington, D.C. for travelers with disabilities. Now, I know this episode is long overdue. I've had this on my podcast to-do list since the very beginning. I know it's an important topic, and that's why I wanted to make sure I brought on guests who could speak with accuracy on this topic. So I am thrilled that I found Jenny and Kelsey, who run an accessibility-focused social media channel and are building a community around accessible travel. I also want to say that I think this episode has a lot of valuable information, whether you consider yourself a traveler with a disability or not. I've personally learned a lot from today's guests, and I think that you will too. At the end of the episode, we talked about what we can all do to make travel more accessible and a better experience for everyone. So I hope you'll stick around till the end to hear that. And with that said, let's get started. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out any show notes from this episode, listen to other episodes, or learn about TripHacks DC guided tours, you can do all of that over at TripHacksDC.com. Today, I am joined by Kelsey Eibach and Jenny Burke. Kelsey and Jenny are co-founders of The Inclusive Traveler an accessibility-focused travel community that spreads awareness, encourages others to travel, and promotes an accessible future. Welcome to you both to the TripHacks DC podcast. Happy to be here. Awesome. Excellent. As I know, you've both visited Washington, DC before. And so before we get into some of your best tips and hacks, I just want to know how you think our city ranks on accessibility overall compared to some of the other places that you've traveled and visited? Yeah, great question. Uh, this is Kelsey, and I am a wheelchair user. So just to put that into perspective, and from my point of view, I would say that Washington, D.C. probably rates about a 7.5 out of 10 um, on a wheelchair accessibility scale. I found that most businesses and attractions were very accessible, but I know you were mentioning this on a, a recent podcast. Sometimes the weather and the hills um, will sometimes make the trip a little bit more difficult. Okay, well, 7.5 is passable, maybe, but definitely lots of room for improvement. Yeah, I think I, I definitely think it should be on everyone's list. Um, but you know, just be cautious about certain areas for accessibility. This is Jenny, I would say from an accessibility standpoint, from what I look for, I have an invisible disability, I have an IBS um, disease where I need to focus on what I eat as well as if there is any bathrooms really easily accessible for me. Um, and overall, there's pretty large cuisine, a lot of different restaurants. I never really struggled too much when I was trying to find a bathroom. So I would say it's um, definitely an accessible place to visit from an invisible dis disability standpoint. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it and giving the audience a sense of who you are a little bit better. So I'm curious when you're planning a trip and you have a destination like Washington, D.C. in mind, You've been here before, so you know a little bit about the city, but for your first time, maybe think back to your first time, what were some of the important considerations that you had when you were planning the trip? Um, again, from a wheelchair user's perspective or anybody that might have mobility issues, 
I think it's important to note that it is a very large city and a lot of the attractions are very spread out. Um, so I went into it knowing that, knowing that there would be a lot of pushing of my wheelchair um, and long days. Maybe I would need to build in some breaks throughout the day. It can be very warm. I visited in August, so um, taking that into consideration. Thankfully, the last time I was there was in 2021, and I traveled there with my boyfriend who actually lived there briefly, so I felt like I had a built-in tour guide. Because of that, he was also able to kind of warn me about how far wide the city is. Um, and then I also live in Chicago currently, so I'm used to my primary way of getting around being either rolling or public transportation. So I'm used to those long distances, but maybe for a wheelchair user or somebody with mobility issues, um, they might need to think about that a little bit more. That's really interesting. I think weather is something that I think about a lot. It's one of the most important topics generally for travel here, but I hadn't really thought of it from that angle before. So thank you for sharing that. And Jenny, is there anything that you, special considerations you look for? DC specifically, there wasn't anything um, that stuck out to me. But if I'm thinking about in general, um, the weather thing that Kelsey just brought up that point, it made me think of a different trip that I had. I went to Malaysia and it was during uh, their like monsoon season. So it was very humid and it was so hot. I had really never experienced that type of heat before. And I didn't realize how much fatigue I would experience from that. So I ended up having to skip almost a full day of activities that my friends went on to stay back and sleep and rest in the air conditioning. Cause I, I, my body just could not take it. So I know that it's not necessarily for DC, but it is something that I take into consideration is the weather and what I'm probably going to experience there. I would say it definitely applies here and pacing is really important. There's a lot of things to do. There's a lot of outdoor things to do. And on a hot day, it, can really wear on you. And I can definitely say this as a tour guide, it, it wears on you. Oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about finding a place to stay. Most travelers stay in hotels, but there are other accommodations as well. And I'm, I'm not sure if you both stayed in hotels or elsewhere, so you can uh, describe your experience. But when you're looking for hotels, what are the things you look for? What are your must-haves? And what are your deal breakers? Yeah. So again, from a physical disability perspective, um, I usually stick to kind of big name hotels like Marriott, Hyatt, et cetera, um, just because they tend to have the most consistency from one place to another. Um, I typically start my search online, try and book an accessible room if possible. However, I've noticed that some hotels don't make it explicitly obvious that they have accessible hotel rooms or when you filter for an ADA accessible hotel room, nothing comes up. Um, so if I can book online, great. If I can't, I'm giving them a call, but I really am giving them a call either way because even if I book online, I don't feel comfortable until I kind of pick up the phone, confirm my reservation and talk through some of the accessibility needs that I have. Um, and that's just a lot easier to do with some of those big box hotels rather than you know, room shares or Airbnbs when there's a lot of back and forth um, and unknowns with where you're staying. Yeah. The good news is that we have lots of big chain hotels here, Marriott's, Hilton's, Hyatt's. And to me, I always thought of hotel accessibility as things like the lobby, 
Can you get in and out the front door easily? Can you get to the elevators easily? But it sounds like there's additional considerations for the room itself. So what are some of the additional considerations that are important? Yeah. So like you said, kind of the bare minimum I look for is step-free access, not only to the hotel room, but to the main hotel areas like the lobby, um, large enough doorways. And then I think the most important aspect of accessibility for me when I'm looking at a place to stay is actually the bathroom. So I typically make sure that I can either get a roll-in shower with a bench or a tub that has a bench or shower chair that I can transfer into with handrails. Um, That's kind of the bare minimum, Um, but some nice-to-haves, which are almost necessities as well, um, but often not considered, is, is there a mirror at a height that I can view myself at? Is there a roll under sink? Something that's incredibly overlooked in hotel rooms is the height of the bed. So often in ADA hotel rooms, you know, you can roll around just fine, bathroom looks great. And then some of these bed heights come up to my shoulder. Like, how do you expect me to actually transfer from my wheelchair into this bed? A lot of folks will actually ask the hotel staff to remove the box spring so that it gets lowered a little bit. You can call in advance and ask for that. But that's just one thing that I find very um, overlooked. And then, of course, I should mention that I'm in a manual wheelchair and I have a pretty strong upper body where I can transfer in and out of a bed, even if it's at more of an inaccessible height. But a lot of folks have less mobility or a motorized wheelchair. And then, of course, just enough room to kind of roll around every side of the bed, the furniture, um, if the light switches or the Um, AC is at a lower height. And then another big thing that's overlooked is just how heavy those doors can be. Um, You know, you, you tap your, your room key to get in and then all of a sudden you're hit with like a ton of bricks to even try and get the door open. So um, those are just kind of nice to haves, I would say. But again, as I mentioned, I think a hundred percent the deal breaker there would be if the bathroom's inaccessible. Mm. I feel like at these big chain hotels, they ought to know better or do better. You would think that. (laughs) But this is also a good reason why I really wouldn't trust Airbnb or anything like that, because even someone who's well-intentioned, you just mentioned so many things that I would be afraid that lots of people might tell you that their place is accessible, even if it's not. Yeah. And just the chain of command that you can go through if you do have an issue Mm -hmm. at a big box hotel. Mm -hmm. It's just easier to get to somebody that will actually listen to your complaints um, rather than, you know, like you mentioned, a host with good intentions that thought it was accessible Mm -hmm. but wasn't. Or even being able to put you into a hotel around the corner like their sister hotel. This happened to my um, myself and my coworkers when we were in New York, one hotel was overbooked and they ended up not having a room for my coworker. But luckily, since it was Marriott, it's a huge hotel. They have a lot of different locations. They sent her to a sister location right down the street. So she was still able to get a room. So that could be something possibly for a wheelchair user. They're like, you know what? We messed up. We don't have the accessible room available, but you can go to this different location, which actually brings up an experience that we had that when we were in Paris, we made sure online, I was so explicit that we 
booked and booked the accessible room. I'm like, I printed out the piece of paper. I had it written everywhere that said accessible room. And when we went to check in, they're like, oh yeah, we'll see if it's available. I'm like, oh no, no. What do you mean see if it's available? It has to be available because I booked this room. What do you mean it might not be available? Luckily it was, but those are some situations that you could potentially run into no matter what, if you book with like a hotel or an Airbnb. I personally stay in hotels and I've talked about in a previous episode why, but one of the reasons is because there's, I guess what you would call redundancies. So if I get into the room and there's a problem with the room, in theory, they might be able to move me to a different one. And what you're saying is another level of that is if the hotel itself isn't quite right, they can even move you to a different hotel that better fits your needs. And I just think that that's better peace of mind. So I I totally get where you're coming from. So let's talk about getting around. One of the big considerations once you've arrived here is how are you going to get around? I do not recommend that tourists and visitors to Washington, D.C. drive or attempt to drive. And so I personally get around by walking, by bicycle, by metro, by bus. And so, you know, our metro rail system is very popular, especially with tourists. And it is theoretically accessible, but I know it's not always 100% reliable. How was your experience riding the metro when you were in DC? I love traveling to large cities that have a public transportation system. Like I mentioned before, I was there with my boyfriend a few years ago. He's also a big fan of public transportation. <laughs> and then of, of course, us living in Chicago, we're pretty used to that being a main, a main way to get around the city. As we know, um, even I, I found it's true with most public transportation systems, wherever you are, um, sometimes it isn't the most reliable, right? Elevators are often out or other accessibility features are out of service and they're not always accurately reported. Um, and it can really derail your day. If you check out a post on one of our mm-hmm. our um, Instagram accounts, you will see, you know, we ran into a lot of that when we were traveling in Europe last summer. Um, but back to DC, I, I took the, the metro a handful of times and I actually found it, you know, when working, when the elevators are there and um, you can look up the accessibility features, I found it pretty accessible. It was not only accessible, but clean. However, it was maybe slightly difficult to navigate as a first time user or not as familiar with the city. Like I mentioned, my boyfriend was helpful in that area. Um, And I think just with everything, planning in advance is key when taking a new transportation system in a city that you're you don't really have your bearings on, um, especially as a wheelchair user for the first time. So the interesting thing about the history of Metro is that it was built starting in the 1960s and they did build the system with elevators. So that's why I say it's theoretically accessible. But. In the 60s, the older stations, they often only have one single elevator in each station. So if that elevator is broken or down, you can't use that station at all. You have to use a different station and then navigate your way to where you want to go. Whereas some of the newer stations, like on our Silver Line extension, which the most recent extension just opened less than a year ago, Each station has multiple elevators, so if one goes down, then there's a backup, and you should always, in theory, be able to use those. So it seems like we're lucky that we have something, given the time it was built, but also frustrating that it's not quite up to modern standards. Yeah, that's a huge... uh, A huge point in the disabled, or at least the mobility disabled community, is 
you almost feel like happy to be grateful with the bare minimum, <laughs> but like there's definitely so much room to grow. And that that's not just in DC, that's in plenty of cities. I want to also ask about riding the bus. I know I saw on the Inclusive Traveler, you were riding the bus in, I can't remember if it was Paris or London or another city, but so I know you ride buses and I wonder if you use the bus here or if you just found the Metro was good enough and you didn't even have to think about the bus. Again, we were there in 2021. And so this was still kind of in the times of COVID. What I really think is cool about the circulator bus in DC is that I know right now, I believe it's a dollar to ride, which is incredibly affordable. But at the time during COVID, it was actually free. So it was incredibly easy for us to hop on and hop off without any repercussions per se. Um, It's not like we paid to go to the wrong place. And because it is a a circulator bus, you know, it kind of just takes you in a general direction. Um, We definitely used it a handful of times. I thought it was extremely accessible. I thought the drivers were actually very accommodating. Um, They would help strap my wheelchair down, make sure I was safe before kind of pulling away, which you don't always get at in the buses in Chicago, at least they really don't care. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no issues there. So that's great. The circulator is extremely popular with visitors, especially the National Mall route, which is, I'm guessing, the one that you use because that's the one that most visitors use. And yes, it is currently a dollar. It has been free in the past during various time periods, but a dollar is still, in my opinion, one of the best deals in town. What about things like taxi or Uber? Do you ever use those? Do you find that they're helpful? What's your experience? Of course, there's the cost associated with that. So if you can take something like the circulator, why not at a dollar? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I do I do take taxis and Ubers quite a bit in every city that I travel. Here in Chicago, we actually have wheelchair accessible vans that are offered by both Lyft, Uber, and our taxi system, which is really nice. Sometimes the wait times can be a little bit longer. Um, but I found when traveling, that's not usually the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity there in a lot of, especially large cities like DC to have a larger fleet of accessible vans that you can almost call on command. Um, I know a lot of folks in the physical disability community will plan in advance um, a lot of their transportation with cabs or accessible drivers. But anything that we can kind of do on command is Mm -hmm. just like our our peers is, is ideal. But with that, I do take plenty of taxis and Ubers that are not, quote unquote, wheelchair accessible, but rather just normal everyday sedans or SUVs. If I'm traveling by myself, I typically will take one that's more of a sedan and just kind of break my chair down and keep it in the car with me. Um, I've found that most Uber drivers are pretty helpful, just like they would help you with your baggage. They'll help with my chair. And then when I'm traveling with somebody else like Jenny, Mm -hmm. um, we typically will book, especially because we we have our own luggage with us, um, more of an SUV. Mm -hmm. And the trunk is typically large enough to fit my chair. And if not, Um, Jenny, actually, I had to teach Jenny how to kind of break down my chair. Um, Now she's a total pro, but I don't know, Jenny, you want to speak to that? I don't know if it's pro. (laughs) I'm working my way up. Um, But yeah, I think it it can be, that can be like our safety net, knowing that we can get just a normal Uber that obviously would be so much more preferred to get one that's wheelchair accessible, but to be able to get just a normal Toyota Prius if we have to and be able to quickly break it down. I think it's helpful to have someone that you're traveling with um, to also kind of talk with the Uber driver just to make 
put them at ease because sometimes they get confused when they arrive and see a wheelchair user and an able-bodied person being like, oh, I didn't realize that I was doing a wheelchair user. We're like, oh, no, no, it's totally fine. This is super easy. Kelsey can just quickly transfer in. I can quickly break it down. Like, don't even worry about it. And I don't want to maybe necessarily associate it to like breaking down a stroller, but like, it's kind of the same concept that if someone has like a large stroller that they need to break down and put in the trunk, an Uber driver would never have a second thought about it. So it doesn't need to be as complicated or decline a ride because of that. So Washington, D.C. is interesting because a lot of the city is relatively new, relatively young, especially the downtown area. It's fairly young, but we still have some old neighborhoods. We have historic Capitol Hill, and then we have Georgetown, which is very, very popular with tourists and visitors. And in Georgetown, there's a lot of brick sidewalks, there's cobblestone, there's giant hills. I think you mentioned hills earlier being something that you consider. So do you have any tips for visiting these kinds of places? Yeah. So as a wheelchair user, if I'm being completely honest and candid, places like Georgetown or those that have, you know, a lot of bricks or cobblestones, um, I really try and avoid those if I'm traveling solo um, or I have to be very strategic about visiting when I do go. But if I have somebody with me like Jenny or my boyfriend, I can typically get through most of it myself and then usually ask for a little bit of help here and there. But yeah, like I mentioned, I'm pretty strategic about visiting those places so that I don't overdo it. I'm, you know, I say like, I'd love to see it. Maybe I'm just there for an hour or I really pick out the best route to get to the few places that I need to be. I know a lot of wheelchair users opt for a motorized attachment to their chair when traveling um, that lifts their front caster wheels, the small wheels at the front of your wheelchair. Um, Those are the most problematic that get kind of stuck in those little crevices. Um, and that typically helps. I don't have one of those. I'm looking into it. I do have a motorized attachment that doesn't lift my front wheel, so it's not as helpful in those situations. But I think that that is, albeit a costly accommodation, um, definitely uh, something to consider if you are going to be traveling a lot in those areas. And then I don't know, Jenny, you can speak to some of the help that I've needed. Yes. Yeah. I think sometimes when we're traveling and we notice that the location that we want to go to is either directly in front of us with a a curb, or we would potentially have to go around a mile or maybe not a mile, but a really long distance to go where the curb cut is. And so Kelsey has taught me how we can pop her up over the curb. This is more specific to manual wheelchair users. And Kelsey has been trained on to do that. And she taught me how to do it, but it's been definitely helpful for us to get to a location faster. And we've taken some tumbles before, Um, but I mean, we laughed it off. Everyone was fine. (laughs) Um, And it got us there quicker and we were giggling along the way. So I think it's great that you have the kind of relationship where you can, as you say, take a tumble together. And this is a really great conversation so far, but let's take a quick break and refill our beverages because I've got lots more questions for you both. If you're listening to this podcast, my hunch is that you're probably planning an upcoming trip to Washington, D.C., or at least dreaming about a future adventure. One thing I've learned from meeting thousands of travelers and doing a bit of traveling myself over the years is that experiences are usually the best memories from a trip. That's why I started Trip Hacks DC. I didn't just want to create content to help you plan a trip, but also to provide an amazing experience once you arrive. 
And I think it's worked because people tell me all the time that their Trip Hacks DC tour was the highlight of their trip. And that really makes me happy. So if that's something that sounds up your alley, you can head over to TripHacksDC.com to learn about taking a private tour with me or a public group tour with one of the amazing Trip Hacks DC tour guides. And we're back. Let's talk about restroom accessibility. Before the break, we were talking about Georgetown and some neighborhoods in DC, like Georgetown, unfortunately don't have plentiful public restrooms. And if you're a big coffee drinker like me, you think about things like this. Where am I going to find a restroom when it's time to go? And I'm curious, what kind of research do you do prior to a trip when it comes to restrooms? And what do you do if you go to a neighborhood like a Georgetown? How do you navigate a situation like that? If I'm going somewhere for an extended amount of time, a destination, maybe like a museum or, you know, where I'm going to be there for a few hours, I might look into the accessibility of a restroom. But honestly, I, I usually don't. I will say that if I'm going to a place like a Georgetown or, um, you know, where there might be smaller pubs or smaller venues, I try and at least get my bearings of where the closest hotel or Starbucks is. Because mm-hmm. um, those are two that usually have accessible bathrooms. I know in a Georgetown, there might be a step or something to get in. But like mm-hmm. Jenny mentioned, maybe she can pop me in. And then once you're in, you're okay. If that means I have to buy a water or a coffee, I will. But oftentimes I've found that they're pretty accommodating for somebody that has a visible disability. You know, I just ask, hey, there there aren't a lot of bathrooms around here. Is there any way that I could use it? Mm-hmm. So I always kind of have those locations in the back of my mind. And then if I am somewhere, you know, maybe Jenny and I went out to eat and I know I went to the bathroom there and I know that they have an accessible bathroom, I will make it a point to go again right before I leave so that I know that I'm good for a while Mm -hmm. before I need to be on the hunt for a bathroom again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do the same thing as well. Um, I look for hotels and Starbucks um, also because so I have ulcerative colitis and um, with this disease, my intestines are damaged and I can't potentially control my bowel movements. So when you're talking about, you know, the morning coffee, you have to go to the bathroom right after it. It's for me and it could potentially happen at any moment um, as well. So anytime I go out to eat, I really, really try to make sure that I go to the bathroom before I leave the restaurant or I always keep an eye out on hotels or Starbucks is my safe space. Chipotle normally has really clean bathrooms mm-hmm. as well. And I've definitely had to rush there quickly before and I'll buy something after if they they look at me. But most of the time I'm like, can't talk right now. <laughs> I'll be right back, I promise. But that, that can be something that can be worrisome um, when I'm traveling out for like long periods of day. But luckily, at least for me, I don't need to worry about the accessibility aspect of it. It's just more, is there one there? Yeah. So I I guess I kind of incorrectly lumped two things together here. There's accessibility, physical accessibility of the restrooms, and then there's just availability of them, which are their own challenges, right? And I do want to just reiterate your point that it's good to take opportunities when you have them, when you know There's a restroom right here and I can use it. Uh, Metro stations in D.C. do not have public restrooms. Now, some of the newer ones in the suburbs do. I took a trip way out to Virginia to go to a specific restaurant I wanted to go to. And I was blown away with how nice the restrooms 
are in those stations, but the ones in the city, the older ones don't have them. And I've heard, I've never tried this, but I've heard that if you find a station manager and ask very politely, they might let you use theirs, but there's really no guarantee. Yeah. I mean, being from Chicago, there aren't public restrooms at any of the Chicago station Mm. stops for the most part. Mm -hmm. So we're pretty used to not, not being able to use them there, but yeah, I know it's sad that we have to rely on the kindness of big box businesses like yeah. Starbucks. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely some room to grow in, I know. in that, that department. That made me actually think of a time. So when I first got diagnosed in like 2011, um, my doctor, so this was in Michigan, my doctor gave me, I called it my potty pass, <laughs> but it was a card that described my condition so that any entity in Michigan had to legally let me in immediately. Not going to lie. I used it to cut the lines at bars, but it, I did have to use it one time at like a, a public place where they're like, the, it's not available for the public to use. I was like, I, I have to use it. And they let me in. They were nice about it, but potty passes. I've never heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I do agree with you. It is frustrating that you have to rely on the goodwill of corporations or in the case of the metro station manager being in a good mood and letting you do it because they could just as well say no. So let's talk about restaurants. This is something that's come up a little bit so far, but I'm, I'm just curious. What are your favorite types of places to eat when you travel? I love trying new food and like the hottest restaurants. Um, I'll always, <laughs> you know, do a little bit of a, a search before I go. Um, if it fits into my schedule and I'll make a handful of reservations, whether or not I make it to those or not, or have to cancel um, on, you know, a few different occasions. I think one of the great things about DC is that there is such a wide variety of food that you can try. I think there's a little bit of something for everyone there. Mm. Um, high, high end, low end, and then types of cuisine. So yeah, it's a, it's a great place for, for food. Are there any special considerations that you make when choosing a restaurant? I will, I think Yelp is a huge tool that I use because, you know, a lot of folks will take pictures not only of their meals, but sometimes they'll take pictures of the inside or the outside of the restaurant. Mm. I use those pictures to see if they truly do have step-free access or, you know, how close their tables are together. Am I going to be able to maneuver around those sorts of things? But other than that, I usually take my chances. Sometimes I'm disappointed, but... (laughs) You know, other times I'm pleasantly surprised, but um, I'm sure Jenny could speak a little bit more to her experience. I like to, I also like to try new cuisines, but some new foods can really throw me off and put me into a flare where it could potentially ruin my rest of the trip. So I want to really look up the menu beforehand, be able to see that, okay, there's some things that I'm interested in trying and getting like the description of what's in the food. Um, But I try not to venture out too much for some really like heavy fried foods or I used to love ramen, but can't, can't do that now. Mm-hmm. I also um, like to look to see if any restaurants have mocktails. I don't drink because of my condition and I'm loving to see that there's a lot more non-alcoholic mocktail options available at restaurants. And it's not something that I have to request the bartender. It's just listed directly on the drink menu. So I really like to support restaurants that are now taking the effort to be more inclusive to everyone. That's a great point. I had a mocktail on a personal trip recently, and it was great. I really enjoyed it. I'm curious because 
sometimes when you go to like a fancier restaurant, like a chef's tasting menu type restaurant, the server will ask at the beginning, do you have any special accommodations that you need? And I always say no, but I'm curious if you typically say you do, if they're good about accommodating those, or have you had any trouble with things like that? I laugh at this because um, I, so I also developed a shellfish allergy over the last like four years as an adult. It's so sad because I loved lobster growing up. Like we could pick our favorite birth- dinner for our birthday and I always did lobster and now I can't have it. But for a really long time when waiters would come over and say, do you have any dietary restrictions? And like, hypothetically, yes. Even before my shellfish allergy, I was like, there's specific things I can't eat, but I would get uncomfortable and I would never want to make a fuss of it. So at least now, not saying it's like an excuse, but it personally for me, it helps me to say, oh, I'm allergic to shellfish. So then now they can be more thoughtful about it. And if I, you know, like start eating a food and I'm like, you know what, I really can't have this, maybe not necessarily because of the shellfish, because of my like um, ulcerative colitis. And I can ask the waiter to like, get me something else. I don't feel as like, burdensome. It's good to hear that they're generally accommodating. And I will say as a business owner, tour company owner, I've fallen out of love with Yelp a little bit, but I am a big fan of Google Maps. And I recently have been posting myself, just Rob the Traveler, not the owner of a tour business. Um, I post photos of businesses on Google Maps, whether that's food or whatnot. And I I earned these fake Google points that you can't redeem for anything. But it's kind of made me think that maybe I should be taking more photos of the space itself and not zoomed in on the food or, you know, just trying to be more helpful when I'm thinking about what kind of photos to take at these places. Yeah, honestly, as somebody that's out and about on tours quite often, those types of pictures are so, so, so helpful. Mm. Um, So anytime you can post those to Google that's another great resource for us as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we'll talk a little bit more in a few minutes about things that we can all do to make travel better and more accessible. But I want to ask first some questions about ADA. And I actually don't know if either of you are lawyers, so I should have asked before we started. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So we have three non-lawyers on the episode. So that means that none of this is legal advice, of course. But my understanding as a business owner is that ADA requires businesses to provide reasonable accommodations to people with with, with disabilities. And so is this accurate? And do you feel like it's generally the default setting when you travel in the US? Or is it something that you get pushback on? I have to laugh at this question a little bit because it's very much so not the case. There are a lot of loopholes in ADA laws that businesses can use to kind of skirt around some of the accessibility laws and accommodations. Um, Also, I don't quote me on this as a non-lawyer, but I'm pretty sure most businesses, if they're cited for a violation of ADA, they have 30 days or even more to rectify the issue. So in the moment, especially as somebody that's traveling, an uphill battle, uphill fight, kind of hard to get around that. But I will say if I do show up to a business that is not immediately accessible, again, going back to the kindness of the workers, Mm. that's huge. 
they'll at least try for the most part to offer me an alternative, whether that's bringing me through the kitchen or through a gross alley or physically lifting me up the four stairs that mm-hmm. is to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're offering something, but like I mentioned, that is, that should be last resort mm-hmm. and on, and shouldn't really fall on the workers themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. that's at least my experience. Do you have, any strategies, any suggestions for firmly asking for an accommodation or like you said, is appealing to the kindness of the workers, what you found to work the best? I think it varies from business to business and situation to situation. So a lot of times if I'm in the mood to quote unquote fight, or I have the time, um, you have to realize that a lot of disabled folks are doing this daily. (laughs) So sometimes we just lose the motivation to really fight the fight. But if I'm in the mood to fight the fight and I can get, you know, a manager or business owner to speak to directly and I have straight up suggestions, I will do that. You know, like let's write down what simple things you could do, Mm -hmm. um, such as have a portable ramp to get up and a button out front Mm -hmm. for somebody to press so that if they need to get in and you have a few steps, they can um, rather than, you know, they're just sitting outside wondering if you have a ramp or what have you. Um, you know, if, if there are a few simple ways to accommodate that I think that they could take action on immediately, I'll definitely have those conversations. Now, some, you know, you need to be like totally knocking down doing full renovations. Mm-hmm. I don't think managers are always as open to hearing that. But um, yeah, I've had plenty of conversations with with business owners and managers on it and plenty seem to be open to mm-hmm. hearing those ideas. Yeah. I think it depends on how receptive they are because you don't want to be that person that's like, I'm going to blast you all over the internet and like come at it from a negative light. I think a lot of times people are uneducated and unaware and they're open to changing it. They just don't know what they don't know. And if we're able to do it in a meaningful way, there is a higher chance that they will take a change and make an improvement versus coming at them or them coming at you. And it's just like a very negative interaction. I don't think that's going to benefit anyone in that situation. I am a member of a group of other tour company owners. And there was a discussion recently that kind of disappointed me, I, I suppose you could say. And it was someone who was writing to say, you know, I have a customer who's written me in made a request for an accommodation. And basically they said, how can I satisfy this legally? What's the minimum I need to do to be compliant, right? And lots of people were responding with like, here's the minimum you need to do. And I eventually got frustrated and kind of wrote in and I said, look, there's kind of two questions here. One is what's the minimum you have to do, but then also like, what's the right thing to do, right? Like, do you not want all of your customers to have the same great experience? Because isn't that the business that we're in is to show people our cities and have them all have a great experience. But I can see how this would be an uphill battle when people are trying to do the bare minimum. And even if it might be a question of education or it might not. I don't think that people realize the amount of money that they're Mm. missing out on by excluding people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. We have billions of dollars to spend and we're not spending them on businesses that are doing the bare minimum. Right. There's studies out there that saying people with disabilities spend more money because they typically come not alone with like 
at least one other companion. So that's a minimum of two people. And there's a, a large population of aging people out there or people with mobility issues. Like there's a huge, huge demographic of people with disabilities and everyone will have a disability at some point in their life, whether it's situational, temporary, permanent. And so there's a lot of ROI there that a company could do those potentially simple fix and you get that money back tenfold. And now you're have a huge larger population to make up a lot of that money. And I think that's been true of my experience as well with many of the guests who have come on my tour. A few other considerations I want to ask about, and you you might not know these from personal experience, but maybe you can share some tips uh, if you have them or know someone who's had them. Um, First is service animals. Uh, Do you ever travel with a service animal? And do you have any tips for best practices or anything like that? Yeah. um, So I have a golden retriever service animal that I travel with some of the time. As far as tips for traveling with a service animal, I often um, have people come up to me and say, wow, you're so lucky that you get to travel with your with your dog. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, I do love traveling with my dog, but it is kind of like traveling with a toddler. You know, I have to pack more. I have mm-hmm. to be considerate of another living thing that's with me. And I, I, I want non-disabled or non-service dog users um, to know that a service dog truly should be treated when they're vested as a piece of medical equipment and not a pet. Mm. Um, I think it's really cute when you see a working dog. Trust me, I get really excited <laughs> when I see other service animals as well. But, you know, making kissy faces or talking to the service animal or reaching out to pet them um, is all dangerous for the service dog handler mm. because then they are distracted and not kind of in work mode if they're being summoned by another person that's walking by. I I thankfully, thankfully have a visible disability when I'm traveling with a service animal, but I know a lot of folks that have invisible disabilities that travel with service animals have a lot harder of a time Mm. because people question their disability. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that talking about your disability on a daily basis or being asked about it can sometimes feel very invasive or personal. Um, And having to defend that you actually have a disability is tough. So I think, of course, there's a lot of folks that have abused, you know, slapping a vest on their pet so that they can bring them on an airplane and that sort of thing. But if you can treat the person with the service animal, with the respect that you would want talking about something very personal to you, um, I think that that's a really important thing to note. Mm -hmm. And I think also being just cognizant of the service animal in your surrounding this, I was traveling last week with a coworker. We were in San Francisco and she had a service animal and the dog was smaller. It wasn't a large golden retriever. And there, when we were in a, a crowded area, the dog accidentally got kicked a little bit because it was small and people were not paying attention. And so from then on, she really had to stay off to the side and like wait until everyone had gone through the buffet line or like wait until everyone had gone to the elevator because the people weren't aware of their surrounding. So again, just being like respectful of people's spaces um, is another thing to remember. I've had a few service dogs on my tours over the years. And one thing that I didn't fully appreciate until I had them on my tours is that they're not there for fun. They're there to work. They're there to assist the person that they are working for. And so 
the dog isn't necessarily having a great time on the tour or seeing the sights. It's there working and working hard in many cases. One other that I want to ask about uh, is ASL. If you are hearing impaired, if you are traveling with someone who can kind of be your translator or interpreter, that is helpful, but not everyone can do that. Sometimes you have to travel solo. And so are you familiar with uh, best practices or tips for people who are traveling solo or without an interpreter? Yeah, this one, I don't think that we can necessarily speak on fully because we're not deaf or hard of hearing hearing ourselves. Um, when I, I know that Washington, D.C. has that large ASL population um, because of the university. And I really, last time I was there, I was tried to make an effort to go to some of the different restaurants or, or places over there that support that population. So the only really thing that I can speak on for that would be trying to support different businesses or locations that support the deaf and hard of hearing community. But I I think that there's things out there. I did a quick Google search to see if there's an ASL app. It looks like there's something out there, um, but that's just not an area that we can really speak on intelligently because that's not our lived experiences. It's Really interesting as technology gets better and better, you know, if you think about 20 years ago, you couldn't have a Zoom call with an interpreter, right, on an iPad or an iPhone. Those things didn't exist. You had to have a physical person there with you. And I don't know what it will be like in 10 years. We can kind of see what's out there now, but it seems like things are always changing. Maybe a minimum that people could do is trying to learn basic ASL um, signs. So if you're thinking like, oh, you're traveling to a new country, you at least try to learn hello, goodbye, thank you, please, etc. Try to learn some of those basic signs for um, people that you might interact with. So then that way you could at least try to communicate a little bit, be respectful, maybe signify like understanding what is the sign to say that you're deaf or hard of hearing because there is a specific ASL sign for that. So if you can know what that looks like now from then on, you can be like, okay, I now know that this person is deaf or hard of hearing. I should try to make better accommodations for them or I try to connect them with something. So that could be something that you could try to make the effort for doing. That's a really good tip. I feel like I should go learn some more signs now. I could definitely be better at that myself. Yeah, I think at the minimum, um, it's relatively easy to learn the alphabet. And then you could at least spell a few things out to get you to a place where maybe you understand that they're hard of hearing or, you know, what they need. And then, of course, thank God we all have phones in our pockets these Mm. days with things like notes apps or text messages. So if you do need to once you can, you know, once you get over the hi, hello, I'm hard of hearing, you know, you could maybe pull out your phone mm-hmm. and do do some of that. Um, and then from a from a tour guide perspective, um, I'm just curious, I'm turning the tables on you a little bit. Um, have you had anybody on your tours that re- required an ASL service? So there's been different scenarios. There's been some people travel with family or friends who kind of act as their interpreter. And in other cases, yes, they will request an interpreter. So let's wrap up with how we can all do better. Because like I said at the beginning, one of the missions of the inclusive traveler is to promote an accessible future. And I think there's something we can all do from business owners to tour guides to fellow travelers. And I think about myself when I travel. So let's start with 
businesses in the travel and tourism industry, what what can businesses in destination, so we'll exclude the airlines because they've got lots of their own issues, but businesses in destination, what can they do to make travel more accessible? I think first and foremost is everybody has a website these days, right? But it can be really hard to find the accessibility or accommodations that are offered at a business online, mm-hmm. making it, you know, sometimes I just write that business off completely if there's nothing on their website because I don't have the energy to call. So I think making it explicit of what you offer on your website front and center, Mm -hmm. you know, don't hide it in the footnotes, you know, just have a tab for accessibility Mm -hmm. um, and have somebody that you can call for more information. Just make it very, very obvious Mm -hmm. of what you offer. And then in, in, in cases like yours, you know, as, as a tour guide, which, you know, and again, I think one of the biggest hurdles with the accessibility industry or population is that there's such a wide variety of accommodations that someone might need and mm-hmm. disabilities that you might come across. So having something like a form, you know, when maybe they're checking out um, buying tickets to your your tour, mm-hmm. there's a you know just a form that on your website that could say, is there any are there any accommodations that you would need? And so that somebody could say, hey, mm-hmm. I need an ASL interpreter or I need to make sure that there's step free. It's a step free route or, um, you know, what have you. So just having those little things can go a long way, mm-hmm. um, even if you're not 100 percent accessible. Um, and then, of course, if a patron does show up at your business with a visible disability or discloses their invisible disability, be as proactive as you can mm-hmm. and also just lead with empathy. Mm -hmm. I think two things to um, tie into what Kelsey was saying. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but support the businesses and hotels that make accessibility important and have made the changes um, to make it more inclusive to everyone. That's something anyone can do, allies, people with disabilities, because we want to make sure that those companies are thriving and continue to stay there long-term so that people know that there's a spot to go. And then secondly, I'm starting to do this now because Kelsey and I travel separately. I travel quite a bit for work. And so what I do is anytime I go to hotels or different locations, I talk about, hey, I have a friend who's a wheelchair user and she's interested in coming here, you know, for a trip later, she just she asked me to ask about some accessibility features. Would you mind sharing that with me? Um, so then that way we can start to get this to be top of mind for people. It can be uncomfortable if someone is in the ally and doesn't identify with the disability, you know, but like they want to say something, but they don't know how to say something. Just say that you have a friend who's a wheelchair user because now you do. <laughs> you you're friends with us, um, and then that way you can make that small change that I think can start to have that snowball effect. And really, if a lot of people are saying it, voice of the customer, Mm -hmm. people will make the change if it's constantly coming up. These are great tips. I feel a little called out myself because my website certainly could be better. I might have this information buried in an FAQ. It's not front and center. I should make it easier to find because I do get emails sometimes. So as a small business owner, you know, instead of spending your time emailing people about this, if you do make it front and center, it can cut down on that. And there's benefit to you there Mm -hmm. too. 
Yeah, I think you used the term no-step route, which my tour route is a, a no-step route, and I have guests in wheelchairs often, including today, the day we're recording this episode. So it's definitely doable. But yeah, I don't always... Sometimes people have to ask me and I should just make that more available. So thank you for that tip. Yeah. And of course, you know, if, if somebody shows up, I think, you know, at your tour, even if they didn't request any accommodations or email you in advance, you might be surprised. Oh, somebody shows up in a wheelchair. Um, I think it goes a long way just to say, Hey, you know, I, we do have a step-free route, but I just want to reach out and ask if there's any other accommodations that I, um, can be or you know help you out with or anything that'll make this a more enjoyable trip for you or tour for you. So what about our fellow travelers or what about as someone who lives in the destination? I live in Washington DC, you live in Chicago. What can people who live in these places or travel to these places do to make them more accessible destinations? I think back to Jenny's point, mm-hmm. the more people that are talking about it, whether or not you know somebody with a disability or not, mm-hmm. the better. You know, so Rob, you might not know anybody else in a wheelchair, but showing up at a restaurant Mm -hmm. and asking about wheelchair access, all of a sudden they're like, huh, it's not just the people in the wheelchairs that are asking about this. Um, So I really, I really do think the more you talk about it, the better. And don't be afraid to talk about it. People are going to make mistakes, Mm -hmm. say the wrong things, do the wrong things. I'd rather have people care and talk about it, mm-hmm. then be scared and don't. Yeah. And remember, a lot of these accommodations help everyone. Have you ever entered a building and pressed the automatic door opener before and walked through? Have you watched Netflix and had subtitles on? These are things that are inclusive and are helping people, everyone. It's not limiting one population by helping another. It's really increasing um, access for everyone. Yeah, I think about things like when I go walk my dog, dogs, plural, in my neighborhood, people have a really bad tendency of parking their cars in crosswalks and in front of curb cuts. And often they'll say, they'll justify it by saying, oh, I'm just running in really quick or, oh, you don't need this curb cut. You know, you're obviously physically abled, but it frustrates me. And I feel like for someone who really does need that, this is a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And again, it goes back to we as somebody that does need those things. It's really frustrating to only be to be the only people that are speaking up. So in that instance, if you have the ability to speak up and say, hey, I know I don't physically need this right now, but there are plenty of people that do. And then to Jenny's point, um, not only that, but that's blocking somebody maybe that has a stroller that's trying to cross Mm -hmm. the street or you know, carrying something that's heavy and they, you know, they can't step down a step. Some of the elderly population really needs those curb cutouts. So it's not just affecting the one wheelchair user that you might see, but probably won't that day. It's there's way more people that are affected by it than you think. Great point. Why don't you go ahead and plug the inclusive traveler? Tell everyone who's listening where they can find you, where they can follow you, all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you can check us out on Instagram at The Inclusive Traveler, as well as TikTok at The Inclusive Traveler. You'll find anything from some of the stories that we told today to tips and tricks for both able-bodied folks and disabled folks. And we hope to see you there. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.